Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Well, we are very pleased to have with us for this podcast uh, really a stunning new author and scholar and activist, Eric Servini, Dr. Eric Servini, who's just come out with a New York Times bestseller, The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. And Dr. Eric Servini is an award-winning historian of LGBTQIA culture and politics. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College and received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates scholar. The Deviance War is his first book, and you can catch Eric on his fabulous podcast, The Deviant's World. (laughs) So Eric Servini, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, This is really um, an extraordinary book. I learned so much while reading this book. And uh, really, the fact that this book came out in 2020, in the spring of 2020, when there has been the largest uh, social justice movement, racial justice movement, but really intersectional justice movement in American history, I think really speaks to just how current this book is, even as it looks at really the history of uh, the gay rights movement um, from the perspective of Frank Kameny, who I really had not really heard of. I knew about the Mattachine Society, but you do such a great job through 20 chapters of weaving um, this astronomer's tale and how that tale really helps to change the United States in a lot of ways, change the entire world. Um, So I want to just start at the beginning, because in the acknowledgments, you talk about how you discovered uh, Frank Comedy's papers in 2005. You know, what inspired you to write this book? It's such an important um, and well-executed, a dazzling first book. What inspired you? Oh, thanks so much. Well, I discovered Frank's name as an undergraduate. And, you know, I had gone to college thinking I wanted to go to law school, maybe work in in public policy or government or something like that. And then happened to take my first history class on the history of American populism. And my mind was blown because realizing how much of history had not been taught in my, you know, Round Rock, Texas public school um, and how much history was still left to be told. Uh, and so around that time, I happened to watch the film Milk about Harvey Milk and, and the city supervisor in San Francisco, who was assassinated tragically in the late 70s. Uh, and similarly, was just completely blown away and, and frankly appalled that I hadn't heard his name before. And I had just come out of the closet, you know, a year or two prior to that. And it got me to thinking what other figures in our past have also been erased from the textbooks. Uh, figures like Frank Kameny, who you know historians have have long regarded as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but until the Deviance War, there there hasn't been a book about it. Uh, and so I went down to the Library of Congress, still as an undergraduate, uh, and opened up his his personal papers, one of the largest collections of uh, LGBT activists in the world. 
and realized that this was truly the, the hidden history of gay rights in America. And that was seven years ago. And now uh, master's and PhD and book later, here we are. Now, when I read The Deviant's War, uh, Kameny, he, he comes off to me as somebody who's both militant, at times even radical, but then over time, you show how there's this sort of push-pull factor, this tug of war, both within the Mattachine Society, um, uh, the Daughters of Libidus, um, the Gay Liberation Front, where at times he's leading, but at times he's really forced to follow. So I want to talk about the arc of his career and how his activism uh, really allows these other sort of tributaries to flow into these different directions that at times outpace um, um, his radicalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, that, you know, we as historians recognize, but sometimes in especially storytelling or in Hollywood, it's easy to forget that, you know, people change and they have uh, uh, character development or changes in their political beliefs or ideology, but so does the world around them. So does the country. And I think you're, you see it so clearly, uh, you know, especially in your own work on, on Carmichael and um, this book on, on Kameny, when you're talking about the 60s and a decade of such turbulence and of change, uh, when society is changing at such a rapid pace around you, it's easy for your own beliefs to get eclipsed and to become outdated, even though you were once ahead of the curve. And I think that's something you see with Frank Kameny. And, you know, I identify him as as really the inventor of what we now know and celebrate as gay pride, what we celebrate each and every June. Uh, and so that in 1961, to declare that to be gay was a moral good and to make that argument in a Supreme Court petition and to do so publicly uh, as, your, as your authentic self, that was a very radical act. Uh, but then by the mid-60s, you start to see actually that's kind of the bare minimum of, of what you have to declare to be a part of uh, the movement. And you have a new generation of activists uh, inspired by people like Stokely Carmichael, inspired by Black Power, saying that that's not enough. We need our own organizations, our own self-determination, um, and our own political power. Uh, and it's no longer enough just to be fighting through these old traditional respectability-laced means. Now, before we get to the real radicalism of the GLF and these other groups, I want to talk about Kameny and how one of the things you do really, really well, um, especially in the book's first half when we're being introduced to him, is we really get a sense of who he is. He's like this brilliant gay man who gets a PhD, serves in the Second World War, becomes one of the few astronomers in the United States. Uh, but then he's also, as a gay man, subject to unbelievable government surveillance and intrusion and just discrimination um, and outright violence and blackmail uh, by local police in Washington, D.C., by police everywhere, but also when you think about the Department of Defense and not having your security clearance. So you do an extraordinary job of really bringing us into the world of being a gay man uh, in the 1940s and 50s. Um, you're looking here at a largely white population, and we'll talk about race uh, further, but 
it, it seems pretty terrifying right here. When I when I saw on on some levels what gay men had to go through, and at times gay women, uh, lesbian women, but they also resist. They buy houses. They do house parties. They do dance parties. You have a very poignant scene where one young man is crying and saying he's never seen so many handsome men together just dancing. So it's really an extraordinary and very poignant. I could I could visualize it while reading, and we'll talk about the movie. That's going to you know I'm, I'm sure there's a movie. We're going to talk about that, Eric. <laughs> that has to be in the works. Is this an extraordinary book? Um, so tell tell us about that. Tell our listeners like what was it like being gay for to be Frank Kameny, exploring, trying to explore your sexuality, mm. knowing that there was nothing wrong with you, but there was something awfully wrong with the society. Yeah. What what was that like? That's well said, and and I think that's something that Frank Kameny, what made him so different was that he was able to recognize that that it wasn't his own sexual orientation or his own condition that made that was the issue. The issue was society and its inability to accept difference and accept nonconformity. But you're completely right. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying to be not just a nonconformist, but a sexual nonconformist, a sexual deviant in the 50s and 60s. And for a bit of context, you know, a lot of people have heard of Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare and the purges of alleged communists and and security risks in the government in the 50s and 60s, what they don't realize is that at an even higher rate, uh, the government was systematically persecuting, dismissing, and labeling uh, and marking as forever a sexual deviant, anyone who was discovered to be a homosexual uh, who worked for the government. So someone like Frank Kameny, uh, you mentioned he was an astronomer. He he got his PhD in astronomy in 1956, just months before the launch of Sputnik and the beginnings of the space race. So you quite literally could not have picked a better time in a better profession uh, in all of America than to be you know someone who is an expert in space at the very beginning of the space race. Um, and yet, only months after he started his job at the Department of Defense, uh, helping develop some of the systems for for missiles and space rockets. Uh, they found out that he was gay. And after a series of humiliating interviews, he was fired and banned from working for the federal government or in the aerospace industry because it required a, a security clearance for the rest of his life. And people at the time knew that this was a risk. And that was something that anytime you entered a gay bar, Anytime you went to a public restroom, maybe in the, in the YMCA, um, anytime you held another man's hand, um, you were at risk of first being arrested uh, for either vagrancy or lewd conduct or loitering of any number of different offenses you could have committed. But the worst part was after that arrest, first, your arrest would be forwarded to the FBI to ensure that you did not work for the federal government so that you could be systematically removed from your post. Second, uh, your arrest would go to the media, to the newspaper, which would regularly report on your full name and your address of any perversion arrests that had occurred. And then third, the police department often informally would call up your family, would call up your employer and say, did you know that a pervert is in your family or is working for you? So there was a multi-layered system of persecution that existed from the, the local level to the federal level 
that essentially created a, a caste system in America that, you know, of course, uh, was overlaid the racial caste system. Um, so to be someone like Bayard Rustin, where you had to grapple with those both parts of your identity was an even scarier prospect in 1950s and 1960s. And so it, it really was a time of fear. But what made Frank Kameny so different was he was the first to actually fight back. Now, I want to we're going to talk about civil rights in a second. But before I get to that, there were two figures that really stood out. And I want to talk about uh, Randy Wicker mm. and Warren Scarberry for a second. Yes. Who, who were they? And, and why do they figure so importantly in this narrative? Well, I'm so glad you asked about Randy Wicker because as, as someone who's from Austin myself and is a big Longhorn fan, he was a University of Texas undergraduate uh, in, in the late 50s and, and uh, graduating in 1960. He was essentially an openly gay student, uh, not to the entire class, but within at the time, if you were out of the closet, or the, they didn't really call it the closet yet, but if you had come out, then that meant that you were you had come out into the gay world, uh, and it didn't necessarily mean out to the public. So he was an out student at the University of Texas, uh, very much a part of Austin's gay world. It had gay bars even in the late fifties, uh, and was also responsible for a few years later, after moving to New York, organizing the country's very first uh, direct action for gay rights, uh, a, a picketing demonstration outside an army induction center in, in, in lower Manhattan. And so you see how Wicker is looking at people like Rustin and King organizing and uh, planning the March on Washington in 63. And you see within even the FBI reports who are keeping track of people like, like Randy Wicker and Frank Kameny. Uh, the reports of, oh, they're planning on following the footsteps of uh, uh, Randolph and, and, and King and Rustin and finally marching as homosexuals for their own rights. And on the flip side, you have Warren Scarberry, who was, uh, I think, one of the most fascinating characters in the book uh, and also elusive and enigmatic in that he was an FBI informant. Uh, so he was a gay man who uh, was living in D.C. and was recruited. Uh, he actually voluntarily went to the FBI, offering his services to s- essentially spy on Frank Kameny's organization, which was known as the Mattachine Society. And do we know why he did this? <laughs> I, that was one of the things I was able to actually figure out by cross-referencing his name with uh, Frank Kameny's personal papers. Uh, and it was essentially an act of revenge. Uh, it, it seems like a, another member within the Mattachine Society, another activist, um, they had had a relationship. And then um, I think there may have been an affair. And Warren Scarberry was so upset and intent upon uh, ruining the life of his ex-lover that he walked into the doors of the FBI and gave over a list of 80 so names of, of homosexuals in the D.C. area many of whose, whose life, uh, their lives were likely ruined. Uh, there's no way of knowing. Uh, but it, it, it certainly goes to show the, the extent to which the government will uh, go to really ruin and persecute a, a marginalized group. Now talk about Kameny and his relationship, and really the Mattachine Society as well, and um, 
the, the daughters of Lebedis, the, the relationship between them and the larger civil rights struggle. Because I thought what's really interesting when you get to chapters like The Alliance, mm. you really start to look at the larger ferment that's happening. Uh, you look at, uh, I thought one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was looking at uh, from the perspective of the gay liberation movement, the gay rights movement, John F. Kennedy and the Kennedy administration and June 11, 63, when he does the civil rights speech and how there are all these plans and machinations and Medgar Evers gets assassinated, but here are what these gay activists are trying to utilize. And also how they try to utilize the March on Washington as, as, as something to buoy their own movement as well. And they all know who Bayard Rustin is, of course. Um, so tell me about Kameny and the, the civil rights movement. And, and also, you know, did you find really much interaction with African-American gay activists and gay rights activists? What did they think of somebody like James Baldwin in mm-hmm. addition to Bayard Rustin? Like, so mm-hmm. were, there, were there times of interface or not? Well, those are, those are two really good questions because I think they show the, the answers you wouldn't expect them to be so different because to answer your first question, the chief role of Frank Kameny and the homophile movement, and I think that their greatest contribution was essentially to act as a Xerox machine. They took not just, you know, there's been so so much great discussion about how people of color, especially at Stonewall and in later years, helped build our movement. But what I've been trying to show through this book is that it wasn't just a single riot led by people of color that that uh, contributed to the gay rights movement. It was every step of the way. Uh, the gay rights movement or the homophile movement, as it was called before Stonewall, was Xeroxing and borrowing uh, from the Black Freedom Movement. Uh, and you can trace it all the way back, you know, to Montgomery uh, and to see how uh, politics of respectability were used there in the selection of Rosa Parks to be the symbol. Uh, you see it in Greensboro uh, with the very well-dressed students. You see it with, uh, uh, you know, other activists being told to dress as if they were going to church before going onto the streets. And every step of the way, you see the gay minority, a very new minority, borrowing the exact same tactics, especially of respectability. So Frank Kameny and Randy Wicker, when they protest outside the White House or the Army Induction Center, they have a very strict dress code uh, stipulating that if you were a man, you had to wear a a suit and tie. If you were a woman, you had to wear a dress. Um, And then, of course, later years, this is still before Stonewall, you have the development of, of black power and black is beautiful. Well, that becomes gay power and gay is good. And that was the invention of, of Frank Kameny. But he was borrowing from uh, Carmichael. He was borrowing from the movement. He was very conscious that he was doing that. But on the flip side, you asked about kind of the, the, the demographics of the movement. It was overwhelmingly white. Uh, there was one instance I could find of a black person attending a Mattachine meeting. And, you know, I was researching what happened. I was asking, you know, what happened to um, that guest who came to the meeting? And the person I was interviewing said, oh, well, we all assumed because he was black that he must have been an FBI informant because all of our meetings to date had been full of white people. And so we were all very suspicious of him. 
And of course, he never returned. And you see other instances of essentially, you know, it, it, there was, they were not immune just because they were also oppressed by the state. They were not immune to racism. And I think it's one of the unfortunate parts of the pre-Stonewall movement of just how exclusionary it was, but also how ingrained it was within segregated society within Washington, because the gay world, especially just as it is now, was extremely segregated when it came to uh, uh, the bars, when it came to uh, uh, apartment social gatherings, things like that, uh, that of course were the product of larger structural issues. But I think the activists could have done much more to build official formal coalitions with the Black Freedom Movement because you see opportunities of that happening throughout the 1960s uh, and time and time again, they, they fail. And so I think it really shows us now in 2020 how as we are having a national conversation with on gender issues and on racial issues, once again, how important that intersectional fight really is. Well, one of the things that you show with Kameny is how he responds, including at one point running for Congress, as the movement starts to get further radicalized because mm -hmm. of Black power, because of the ferment of the, the late 1960s. So even, um, I want to talk about Stonewall, of course, and, and Marsha P. Johnson and others, and, and the very interesting relationship between her and Wicker that you described. Yeah. Um, but what happens to really radicalize this movement? Like what leads to Stonewall and, and marching for pride and really saying, you know what, we're not going to do the politics of res respectability, but really saying we're queer, we're here, gay is good, and we're going to be part of this wider struggle for reimagining social justice in American, in American society. What happens? Mm -hmm. Well, I think so many people, whether in the, in the general public or even within academia, have studied Stonewall in a vacuum looking at really local issues of what may have prompted that uprising. And I think what's really important, what I try to do in the book, is to put it in the context of the 1960s, right? Violent uprising, violent resistance, and the destruction of property had become a valid method of resistance uh, increasingly throughout the 1960s. So, of course, you know, you have uh, 67, you have Detroit, 68, you have Washington and all over the country. And then 69, of course, you have uh, Stonewall. So there, once again, were uh, pulling from uh, resistance in Black communities. Uh, you have, you know, it, even in the book, uh, you have people like Carmichael saying, we need to tear it down. Like this entire system is uh, intent upon keeping us uh, uh, oppressed. And so we need to tear it down. And you have that same, uh, you have little inklings of it happening before Stonewall. But really, what made that event so different was the media coverage. And I think anytime I, I have to explain to people why Stonewall was so important, even though there had been violent resistance uh, and rebellions in other locations before Stonewall, uh, they didn't have two members of the press. You didn't have two reporters from the Village Voice there. Right. And I think you see it this June when as soon as the, the resistance became violent. Right. As soon as it became, you know, the riot police were involved, 
in 2020, this year, that's when you had all the media coverage, right? That's when CNN was on the ground. Uh, and that's when we were actually talking about it. But as soon as it became peaceful, then suddenly there was much less discussion, at least in, in the popular press. And the same exact thing happened with Stonewall. Because there just happened to be reporters there, because the New York Times happened to report on it, it sent a signal to the rest of the movement and also to uh, queer folks who were in other movements, including the anti-war movement, including uh, the Black Freedom Movement, including women's liberation, that at last this other part of their identity was coalescing into a, a tangible, visible movement. And so that's why it exploded in size, even though activism and the ideology of, of the movement had long been established. I want to talk to you about um, the chapter, The Liberation, which is one of the last chapters and there, I thought you did a, a great job of showing a few things. And you do this in the chapter, The Riots, as well. But for those of us who grew up in New York City, like myself, in the 80s, uh, The Village Voice was a very pro-gay newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, and you really show The Village Voice uh, before that, uh, yeah. The Village Voice that doesn't want to use the word gay or homosexual. And you say, it's uh, right here on page 317, you say, quote, it's coverage of the in air, in quotes again, dyke and faggot riots, moreover, continued to infuriate the homosexuals. I was really struck by that. I was struck by how a paper that when I grew up in New York City was absolutely one of my first really um, thoughtful explorations of, of understanding gay identity, including black gay identity, was through the Village Voice and being able to read about it, 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 very thoughtful essays and pieces and interviews. And yet, in the context of the 1960s, I found it extraordinary that the voice was was homophobic and, and really despicable in its treatment oh, sure. of gay people. Oh, sure. Um, but on the other hand, they covered it, right? They So yes, they were using this, this despicable language, but most... Uh, uh, outlets, most media, either publications or, or news cover, it was a conspiracy of silence, right? In, in their minds, they just didn't want to even touch this issue. So in a way, yes, it was offensive. But the fact that, you know, immediately after Stonewall, The Voice gave, you know, two very large, extensive articles to this uh, moment uh, showed, I think it showed to the, the, the gay activists that finally there was, there was interest in what they were doing, but it also showed them that they really needed to educate the paper and what people, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about that last uh, uh, night of, of the riots is people don't realize the riots lasted four different nights over the course of six days. And the very last night was on a Wednesday night after a weekend of protests because of the language that was used in the village voice. Um, and because the voice, you know, considered itself a, uh, a progressive paper when they picketed outside the, the publisher's offices, uh, they actually came and talked to them and said, okay, we'll stop using these offensive words, uh, which I think says a lot, you know, that they actually were willing to change. Whereas, you know, these other papers wouldn't give, uh, these activists the time of day. Um, but it just goes to show how ingrained, even in a supposedly progressive paper, uh, the, the rhetoric and the, the, the homophobia really was because I, even in the, the Stonewall 
uh, articles, which I encourage anyone to go look. All of the Village Voice is uh, digitized and you can look at their old archives. And if you look at their uh, uh, coverage from July 1969, um, you can see, just as you said, the, the offensive words, but also things like, oh, you know, at this moment, the first, you know, uh, uh, object was thrown and limp wrists were forgotten and things like that. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's somewhat amusing, but also a little depressing. <laughs> I want you to talk about Kameny and gay is good. And, you know, in the chapter, the pride, which is the next to last chapter, the, the notion of pride and the many meanings of this word, because you really introduce it even in the first few pages. But then by the time we get to this sort of fulsome narrative of culmination, I, I got I, I had a deeper understanding of, of pride and, and uh, you know, sort of the many iterations of it and the multiple meanings of it. Uh, you know, pride is a metaphor for, you know, sexuality, for citizenship, for dignity, so many different things. And I want you to talk about that because I think it's so well done. Um, and how Kameny, the gay is good, is inspired by, yes, Black freedom struggles, but that notion of pride that even he might have had so many different um, folks who are queer, who are trans, have taken that and done their own iterations in ways that are, I think, truly profound, but at times can cause tensions within the movement as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm so glad you use that word iteration because it's, I think, the perfect word to show that, you know, you can have early versions of pride that are still maybe prototypes or still not fully developed, but are just equally valid. And that I think, you know, in my dissertation and even in this book, I, I think the, the one of the larger contributions I'm making to the study of history is most people assume that pride or gay power or declaring that homosexuality is morally good to say that gay is good um, is an invention of the late 60s and indirectly rooted in, in you know, black is beautiful and, and uh, Stokely Carmichael. And I argue that we actually need to be looking closer at Greensboro and uh, 1961, the year after when Frank Kameny and his Supreme Court petition, the very first Supreme Court petition submitted by an openly gay man for, for employment rights of, of homosexuals, he declares that homosexual activity is a moral good. And he does that because the federal government had told him that homosexual activity inherently was morally bad. So he was going to prove that it was arbitrary and unconstitutional by making his own arbitrary argument. Because if he's going to say that it's morally good, then how is the government going to claim otherwise other than pointing to scripture, which is, of course, unconstitutional. So I argue he's doing the exact same thing that the students in Greensboro were doing, right? In reclaiming morality from themselves away from the white Southern segregationists who had long claimed that, you know, the mixing of the races was, was immoral and going to lead to the destruction of society and, uh, you know, had always held on to that, that mantle of, of moral authority. And the students proved them wrong. And they proved to the rest of the country, they proved to Time magazine, they proved to the American public that, you know, they simply wanted to sit there at the Woolworths lunch counter and have lunch. And you see these white kids pouring ketchup and Pepsi and, you know, acting despicably, how can you possibly believe that they are the immoral ones, that these black students are the immoral ones? It becomes so visually clear where the immorality lay. And 
I believe Frank Hamney did that exact same thing as a legal argument in developing pride as, as a strategy within his legal argumentation, which then grew over time uh, to become more of a psychological antidote, antidote uh, to the feeling of inferiority uh, that, you know, black folks had felt equally or just as much uh, that same feeling, of course, more so going back way more in time because they were recognized as a minority group. Whereas Frank Kameny had to convince people that that gays were even a minority group to begin with. Um, and so what did he do? He, he borrowed that same exact concept and, and Xeroxed it and went from black is beautiful to gay is good. Who is Marsha P. Johnson? And can you discuss her relationship with Randy Wicker. Oh, it's, one, was very it's one of my favorite stories. And, and of course, it's heartbreaking as well. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson was a black trans woman uh, who was a sex worker. She was an activist. Um, she was a figure within the community in New York City. Um, she was a veteran of Stonewall. Uh, multiple eyewitness accounts have her there. Um, there's one of my favorite accounts is she managed to climb a, a lamppost in a tight fitting dress and high heels and, uh, dropped a bag of bricks or rocks. We're not quite sure what it was onto a police car below, which was one of the most, I believe, iconic moments of the entire, uh, series of, of, uh, uh, uprisings. But she also teamed up with After Stonewall with Sylvia Rivera to create Star, which they called uh, the Street Transvestites for a Action Revolutionaries, which essentially was the country's first homeless shelter for queer youth. And it created a new model for how we can help the most marginalized members of, of our own community. And uh, she was in the, in the 90s uh, friends with Randy Wicker, who is, the, of course, the, the activist who organized the first gay rights uh, uh, picket and was really instrumental in proving to him how misogynistic, how transphobic, how racist he had been in his early activism in the 1960s and using the strategy of respectability to exclude the most marginalized members of our community. And he realized how that strategy had been self-defeating. And so now he's still around. He's living in New Jersey. He uh, is has dedicated the rest of his life to fighting for and protecting uh, trans women of color in particular uh, because Marsha in the 90s was, was found dead uh, in the Hudson. Um, the police department... Uh, immediately claim, claimed that it was a suicide upon no evidence whatsoever of it being so. Uh, Randy and others, including Sylvia Rivera, were able to persuade them to, to, um, uh, to take away that classification and eventually to reopen the case because uh, there's no reason to believe it was anything other than murder, uh, which really speaks to a problem that continues in 2020. Uh, if you are a black trans woman, you are 16 times more likely to be murdered. Um, and I think it shows, especially in light of the victories that we've had for, you know, cis white gay men like me, um, celebrating employment protections and gay marriage. Um, there are members of our community who are still at such high risk of, of violence. And I think now it's time for us to, to fight for them 
after having forgotten them, consciously forgetting them for so long. You end the book with a real poignant scene of Frank Kameny uh, at the White House uh, several times. Um, uh, on April 23rd, 2009, um, President Obama appoints uh, the highest ranking gay official in American history, John Barry, uh, to be the head of uh, the Office of Personal Personnel Management. Um, then, and Frank Kameny is 83 at the time. He attends his swearing-in ceremony. Um, two months later, he's at the Oval Office, uh, uh, you know, looking over the president, President Obama's shoulder as he expands healthcare uh, for for partners of gay federal employees. And then finally, um, on June 24th, 2009, uh, John Barry gives him an official letter um, apologizing uh, for. Uh, what what is said, the shameful action, the United States Civil Service Commission in 1957 upheld your dismissal from your job solely on the basis of your sexual orientation. Um, I thought that was, you know, so moving. Um, you know, he says, with fervent passion of a true patriot, you did not resign yourself to your fate or quietly endure this wrong. With courage and strength, you fought back. And what is what does Frank Kameny say? <laughs> he stands and is very, he, he was not known for, for uh, brevity in anything he said, but in this one instance, he stood and simply said, apology accepted. Yeah. And, and so you, you talk about, um, you know, the don't ask, don't tell finally being ended by President Obama in 2010. Um, but very poignantly, you end with uh, the July 21st, 2011 space shuttle Atlantis uh, landing. And why was that so important in terms of Frank Kameny and NASA and his dreams? Mm. Well, I always tell everyone, you know, Frank Kameny did not want to be the grandfather of the gay rights movement. He did not want to be a gay activist. He wanted to be an astronomer. He wanted to be an astronaut. Um, he was better positioned than anyone in the country to be one of the founding fathers of the American Manned Space Program. Um, he would have been one of the first employees of NASA. He probably, as an Army veteran, uh, would have had a very high probability of actually traveling to space. And despite a life of continuing to apply for jobs within the government, uh, he was never allowed to, to serve uh, and to actually use his incredible intellect to help our space program. and. In 2011, uh, America retired the space shuttle and the very last uh, uh, space shuttle touched down and he was alive for that and he passed away just a couple months after that. Um, and I think it shows, you know, his life was was a tragic one, but of all people, I like to think it, at least thank God it happened to him. You know, thank God that if, if the tragedy were to happen to anyone, it, it happened to someone who was willing to fight back uh, to live in poverty uh, for the rest of his life uh, so that he could continue fighting the government and helping others and constructing what we now know is, as pride. And my final question is, how do you think the Deviance War speaks to this current moment of Black Lives Matter protests uh, for, for, for racial justice and social justice all around the country and all around the world? And especially since BLM has been led by Black queer feminists, uh, Black trans women, 
so many different activists really intimately connected to LGBTQIA movements. Uh, How does the deviance war, and I just kept thinking about the the contemporary uh, watershed historical moment while reading this, how does this connect with now? If there's anything I hope people take away from the book, it's that we borrowed, and we meaning people like me, white, cis, gay men, we borrowed the entirety of pride from the Black Freedom Movement, and we have gay rights because of trans women of color. And time and time again, you see it through the book and through all of history. You see it at Stonewall. You see it throughout the 70s and 80s. It's those with the least to lose who are the first to fight back, but also the first to be forgotten. And that includes trans women of color, especially Black trans women. And so I believe the book proves that people like me who are celebrating marriage and prosperity uh, in our own presidential candidate, we have a moral obligation to be joining in the fight for Black lives and to be declaring that Black trans lives matter uh, because we have tangible rights because of these groups. And so not only is it a a responsibility on a basic human decency level to to declare the sanctity of those lives, but we need to take it a step further. We need to be on the front lines um, at these demonstrations and and calling for the arrest of of the officers who killed uh, uh, Brianna. And it's, it just shows how much more work we have to have to do. All right, we're going to end it there. We're ending on an optimistic note of uh, really what what this extraordinary historical time period um, means for all of us. Uh, we've been chatting with Eric Servini, who's written really a wonderful book, a brilliant book, uh, The Deviant's War, which is a New York Times bestseller, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, which was really a panoramic history of Frank Kameny, Uh, the Mattachine Society, but really gay liberation um, in the post-war period. You know, you get the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, all the way up into AIDS and the Obama administration, the AIDS crisis and Obama administration. So this is really a wonderful contribution to history. Um, Dr. Eric Servini is an award-winning historian of LGBTQIA culture and politics Uh, He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard and received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates scholar. Uh, The Deviant's War is his first book, and his podcast is The Deviant's World. Uh, And really, please um, get this book. It's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be made into a movie, documentary, multiple iterations, and it's really that good. So, (laughs) Eric Servini, thank you for joining us on Race and Democracy. Thank you so much for having me. And the one thing I wanted to say is I hope people will also buy Stokely a Life because it's in the end notes. I, you cannot tell Frank Kamney's story without telling the story of, of Stokely Carmichael and, and other folks like uh, Bayard Rustin. And so I hope I'm looking at Amazon right now. It says there's only 16 left in stock. So I hope the first 16 listeners will buy both, <laughs> both books because they're the perfect, <laughs> a perfect accompaniment. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio 
at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.